You're listening to Youth and Loud. The show that's the show that's quiet about the trivial things, but loud about the important things. We discuss all issues relevant to youth. If you'd like to find out more about the show or have a topic idea, check us out on Facebook and give us a shout by searching Youth and Loud. And on this episode, we talk with Tarina Fanning, who is a principal consultant, a work facilitator and mentor. Um, Tarina has a wealth of experience in a range of roles, including serving in the Victorian police for over 10 years, um, working as a manager for the Victoria Police Aboriginal Advisory Unit, and working, uh, amongst other roles, as a Cory Cultural Training Officer for the Department of Justice and Regulation. Um, so she joins us now. Um, so, Tarina, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, to begin with, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what your life looks like at the moment? Okay, well, I'm an Aboriginal woman. I'm a Larrakia Tiwi woman. So, Larrakia country is up in Darwin and the surrounding area. And the Tiwi Islands are across the Arapura Sea from Darwin, and that is Melville Island and Bathurst Island. So those two islands make up the Tiwi Islands. In terms of what my life looks like at the moment, I work for um, Court Services Victoria in an organisation, in a business unit called the Judicial College of Victoria. And the Judicial College of Victoria provides educational um, programs and things like that for the judiciary of Victoria. So what what motivated you to get into working positions that had such um, a positive influence on the lives of other people? Well, I guess my inspiration to help people stems back from growing up in country Victoria. My parents uh, well, my parents adopted me. Um, I am a member of the stolen generation, so I'm one of those Aboriginal children who was taken away from their mother uh, when I was just a baby. So my mum was only 20 years of age when she gave birth to me, and my mother too, she was a member of the stolen generations, and she was taken away as an eight-year-old girl and placed on a mission in the Northern Territory before she was actually sent to Brisbane uh, where she was in a girl's home for quite some time before she uh, was put out to work as a domestic servant. Uh, so in answering your question, yeah, I was adopted when I was eight months of age um, by a beautiful non-Aboriginal family and they're a family um, that we grew up in the church and, and so I guess I learned a lot of, you know, my nature to help people from my parents because my parents were always helping people, whether it was the people in the church or whether it was just, you know, uh, um, people full stop. So I have always you wanted to help people. I've always wanted to inspire people. In relation to my culture, um, I've always wanted to help the younger generation to find out more about their identity, about their culture, about their sense of belonging 
and that is something that you know as an older aboriginal woman i really you know am passionate about in helping the younger generation be strong in their culture be strong in their identity because they're our future Mm. Tarina, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what's important to understand about uh, Aboriginal identity and you mentioned as well uh, having a sense of belonging. Um, Can you unpack that uh, a bit more for us in terms of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island uh, culture and and, and perspective? Well, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are extremely diverse so we don't just fit into a certain mold and I guess what I mean about identity is that sometimes when you grow up um, as uh, you know, a, an Aboriginal person there are always people that question your identity and your Aboriginality and that can sometimes stem from you know uh, the color of one's skin um, sometimes out there there's quite a number of perceptions and stereotypes that in order to be an Aboriginal person that you you have to have, you know, quite dark skin, you have to have brown eyes, you have to have dark hair, etc. And, you know, in our culture, we actually have, you know, people that are very diverse in terms of what they look like, what their skin colour is. You know, you can get Aboriginal people who have, you know, fairer skin, they might have blonde hair, they might have blue eyes, uh, they might have red hair, they may have freckles. Um, not each of you know not each of us is is the same and so in terms of identity what i like to talk to other aboriginal people about and particularly younger aboriginal people about is to be strong in your identity and your identity is not actually what you look like it's actually your culture it's Mm. you know who you are as a person it's your family it's your community it's the you know Aboriginal mob that you come from. Um, so you're really saying that in terms of Aboriginal identity, it's more about um, who they are and not so much um, what they look like, but more about who they are as an Aboriginal person. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Aboriginality, you know, an Aboriginal person, you know, it's our spirituality, it's our connection to our country, it's our family, it's our connection to our culture, uh, to our stories, um, to our land. It's, you know, it's all of that. I mean, we're a very proud culture. So, Karen, if we can go back um, to your own upbringing and own experiences um, as an Aboriginal woman, um, what's some of the, the best memories you have about your childhood and your um, upbringing? Oh, look, a lot, a lot of memories of family holidays that my parents, you know, took us on. Um, I grew up in a really loving family. I have an older non-Aboriginal sister, an older non-Aboriginal brother, um, and a, an old aboriginal brother who was also taken away and uh, adopted by our parents so we're not of the same blood but we are still brother and sister and some of the great memories of of growing up um, in our family was going away on holidays Uh, we used to go up country we used to go up to um, a place in country victoria called whitfield Uh, we used to go camping along the the cola river um, they were really special times and, you know, it didn't matter that we were a blended family, that we were Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal people, 
those mm. times were extremely precious for us as a family to spend time together. Yeah. Um, so I guess it sounds like that as you were growing up, your family uh, really gave you that sense of belonging and gave you that sense of acceptance, um, as you mentioned, even though it was a blended family. Yes, that's so true. And my parents, you know, even though they were non-Aboriginal parents, they encouraged our Aboriginality. Um, and although they didn't know a lot about our background and our family, because in those days uh, when you were a member of the stolen generation, authorities didn't always tell the adopted parents a lot about family because right. it was, yeah, um, it was just the way they did things back then. But uh, my parents, they always encouraged us to, you know, read books, uh, you know, watch Aboriginal films. Uh, in our travels, they would take us to Aboriginal organisations and keeping places. We would go to Aboriginal sites to go and visit so that, you know, we could, you know, soak in as much of our, our culture as we could. And even though they weren't Aboriginal, they very much encouraged us to, you know, to learn more about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture, which was just wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the way your parents uh, raise you was to stay in touch and to stay connected to your Aboriginal culture and heritage. Um, do you think that's uh, one of the main things which are important for any Aboriginal person to have that support and connectedness to their own culture and heritage? So, yeah, family is of the utmost importance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Family, you know, is everything to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Or, you know, um, whilst, yeah, um, yeah, it's just it's the glue that sticks our community, you know, keeps our community together. But, yeah, family is very important. And, look, yes, there are some families that are, you know, disconnected from one another for whatever reason that may be. But, you know, all in all, most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, um, you know, rely on each other, stick together, um, because, you know, that's who we are as our community. Tarina, can you share with us, uh, going back to your own uh, upbringing and experience, what, what are some challenges that you face when you were growing up? And what support did you receive from friends and family during that time? Yeah. Look, growing up as an Aboriginal person isn't always an easy thing. Um, I was always teased um, at school, whether it be at primary school or high school. I was um, quite often bullied um, by people that, you know, thought that they were better than me um, because, you know, I have... Um, you know, an olive complexion and dark skin, you know, I would get picked on a lot. So um, it was very important for me to be resilient. And, you know, there were times when I would come home from school and I would say to my parents, you know, why do people pick on me? And, you know, my parents being who they are were really lovely and they'd say, they're picking on you because you've got beautiful brown skin and they want brown skin mm. and that they're jealous because they're not you. So... Yeah, I guess growing up, you know, um, being picked on because of the colour of my skin, being called some derogatory names, which I sort of won't mention on this interview, but, you know, there were sort of three and four letter derogatory terms that, you know, I used to get called and, mm. you know, that's not easy. But I was very lucky that my parents were very supportive and I also mm. had absolutely great 
friends. Um, but I didn't have a lot of friends, but the friends that I did have in primary school and high school were the ones that would actually stick by you um, regardless. And and so for me, you know, having that support of family and having that support of friends was, you know, my, um, my crutch and my way of coping with some of the things that life had thrown at me. So it was about the challenges and the support that, you know, I had to... Um, you know, to to face those challenges. And not only as a child I faced those challenges, actually when I, and I'm not sure if you were asked this down the, the, the track, but when I became a police officer in 1986, um, I faced a little bit of racism from some of the squad mates that I went through the academy with. Um, I, you know, believe that was more out of jealousy than, you know, really anything else. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that was also a challenge. So I guess, you know, as an Aboriginal person, you know, regardless of what age you are, there are always challenges that you do face in life. You're listening to Youth and Loud. Um, and during that time, Tarina, when you did become a member of the Victorian uh, Police Force, um, what, what gave you the strength and what gave you the courage to... Uh, keep going uh, despite that um, uh, bullying or despite that racism. What what strengthened you to uh, to keep going and to stay with um, the police force? Mm. Well, I am a very resilient person, and I'm one of these people that you know don't like people to beat me, so to speak, or to you know knock me down or things like that. And the other reason why I wanted to. Uh, remain in the police force and it was resilient to overcome you know those ignorant um, people was because there were not that many Aboriginal people in the police force when I joined to my knowledge there was only three other Aboriginal men uh, so there were three Aboriginal men that were in was in the police force when I joined in 1986 uh, there were no women um, I'm very proud um, of the fact that I was the first Aboriginal woman to join Victoria Police. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I guess, yeah, in answer to your question, the resilience for me to get through, you know, the Police Academy, which was about 26 weeks, I think, from memory, um, was because I had a really strong belief that we needed more Aboriginal people in the job. And if I could actually be a role model to other Aboriginal um and Torres Strait Islander people to actually join the police force, then we could actually break down some of those barriers, some of the negative views that some of our community had um, with regards to police. And it was also about breaking down some of that stigma and maybe some of the views that maybe some people, police people had um, towards the Aboriginal community. Because back in the day, yeah, police and Aboriginal community didn't sort of get on all that well or there was quite a mistrust between the two. Mm. And with Aboriginal people, the mistrust towards the police was um, due to the fact that police were used to take children away during the Stolen Generation and Assimilation Day. So mm. a lot of our community were quite mistrustful of the police for those reasons. In 1997, can I ask about the Bringing Them Home report? Um, just wondering, when that did occur, what what support did you receive, did you receive personally, 
And what support did other um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people receive? So in 1997, when the Bringing Them Home report was released by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, um, I had you know, previously gone looking for my mother um, back in 1993 and actually found her um, in 1999. And I guess the release of such a major report that highlighted, you know, the social and emotional well-being, uh, the impact of the stolen generations had on our people, um, it actually helped people uh, with their journey of healing. It helped people you know, realised that there was some assistance and help out mm. there. And so as a result of the Bringing Them Home report, um, a lot of Aboriginal uh, community-controlled health organisations um, got positions of Bringing Them Home counsellors. And the Bringing Them Home counsellors were, were put in place to help people like myself and other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who were taken away to try and find their family, to try and, you know, um, explore their their uh, family, their culture. Um, and so for me, after that report, I actually did um, meet up with and consulted a Bringing Them Home counsellor who then put me on the path to working with an organisation called LinkUp uh, to actually try and look for my younger sister and my mm. younger brother. Yeah, I guess through that experience, uh, you're able to make contact and to get in touch with your sister and brother um, again. Yeah, might I add though that that search for my sister lasted nearly thirty years. Right. So, um, yeah. So. What you'll find when you work, uh, you know, when you work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from the stolen generation, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. Sometimes the journey to find family um, can be 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And sadly, some of our members of the stolen generation may not ever find their family because they may have passed away or there were you know, very limited records for um, the bringing them home counsellors or the workers, the Aboriginal workers that worked the link up. Mm. Um, you know, they weren't able to find, um, you know, enough evidence of person who was searching um, and, and finding their family. So, you know, there's still a lot of sadness surrounding um, the stolen generations, but mm. the, the bringing them home report certainly you know, uh, was a big step for many, many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to go looking for their family. Yeah. And what was that experience like uh, for you when you were finally able to get back in touch with your sister and brother? Um, can you share with us a little bit about um, what your own experience was like and um, how that uh, impacted you? Yeah, it um, it actually happened Christmas, Christmas of two thousand and fourteen was when I found my sister, or we basically sort of found each other with the help of LinkUp, which is an organisation. Um, I had always known that I'd had a little sister, but um, because I was told by family, but 
I had no idea where she was, where she was living, um, because she had gone over in New Zealand with her father, and she had, you know, when she had moved back from New Zealand, she had got married, and so her name had changed, all those sort of things. So they were some of the challenges. But, um, yeah, to cut a long story very short, the actual... Um, Finding out about my sister in Christmas uh, 2014 was absolutely the best Christmas present I could have ever been uh, given. Um, I knew about my brother back in 1999. However, I'd never ever got the opportunity to uh, speak to my brother or meet up with my brother because sadly, for whatever reasons, um, some family kept um, my contact details away from my little brother. Um, he... In 1999, he would have been 15 years of age and some family believed that he was just too young to deal with that information and that knowledge. And so, um, you know, that's something that we've regretted. Yeah, so I probably was a little bit confusing there. Um, I learned about my brother in 1999 and the reason for that was because I started the search for my mother in 1993 and Up was able... It took six years. But Link Up was able to locate my mother and my little brother in 1999. But sadly, um, that was only two days before I was due to go over on a one-year holiday to uh, England. And so, you know, I had a quite an emotional battle with myself, uh, wondering should I call, try and make contact with my mother, um, etc. And so I, I decided that I just needed a little bit of time, you know, to take it all in. And so I left to go overseas, but sadly, while I was overseas in the March of 2000, um, my mother passed away, and I never got the opportunity to speak to my mother or to meet my mother. So in terms of my little brother, who was 15 at the time, um, you know, I didn't really have the opportunity to connect with him um, at all, and the reason for that is because um, some family didn't pass on my details to my little brother so um, you know from 1999 until 2015 um, I never had a relationship with my younger brother because we you know weren't able to make contact with each other mm. but needless to say when I found my sister in um, Christmas of 2014 um, I let her know that uh, she, in fact, had a little brother because she had always been only looking for her big sister, which right. was me, and she wasn't aware that um, she had a little brother. So, mm. um, you know, um, she gained two siblings, you know, in one day, basically. Um, yeah. And so we agreed. Um, I actually made contact with our brother, um, and we all made plans for my sister, who lived in Townsville, and myself living in Melbourne, um, so myself, my husband and my parents uh, and my sister and her husband, we travelled up to Darwin in May, uh, sorry, in August of 2015 and we met our little brother for the first time. So there were many, many tears, um, you know, lots of stories to be shared, mm. um, a lot of, you know, time to catch up on. We got to visit the final resting place of our mother. Um, she was buried um, on traditional Aboriginal uh, land in um, a beautiful Aboriginal cemetery, um, which is only reserved for 
you know, families of our Aboriginal community. So, um, yeah, we met lots of aunties and uncles. We met nieces and nephews, and uh, it was a really, really special time. But that journey was a very emotional time. Um, but needless to say, um, ever since that time, uh, the three of us have been exceptionally close. Yeah, and to add to that, when we did meet up Darwin in August of yeah, 2015, we actually learned that we might possibly have an older brother because some family had said that when our mother was quite young, she gave birth to a boy. And so we then put um, a search in place with LinkUp to see if we could locate our our older brother or if indeed we did have an older brother mm. and we were lucky enough it took around four months but link up were able to find out that we did have an older brother but sadly that older brother had actually passed away um when he was only two and a half years of age so mm. yeah stories for, for members of the stolen generation our stories um never stop and we never stop looking for family. Yeah. You're listening to Youth and Loud. What do you think the wider Australian community can do to support the Aboriginal community and to help continue to facilitate a healing and reconciliation for Aboriginal people? Look, I really think it's important, you know, to start... Um, from school, to be quite honest. I think it's really important that, you know, the the learning and the education starts from the school level, um, primary school level, high school level, etc. But I think, you know, the wider community too, it's actually about acknowledging that Australia does have a black history, that mm-hmm. Australia doesn't just have a non-Aboriginal or a white history, um, and to actually listen to and hear the stories of Aboriginal, you know, and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're more than happy as Aboriginal people to actually share our story so that there's a, a shared understanding. So, you know, reconciliation for me is extremely important. I've, you know, often spoken at um, for organisations and talked about, you know, reconciliation. And reconciliation is about... Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people working, you know, walking together um, in a mutual understanding and, you know, learning from each other and it's about acceptance, absolutely about acceptance, you know, of one's culture. Yeah. Um, you know, as an Aboriginal woman, I love the fact that Australia is a multicultural country. Um, you know, I love that, you know, we have lots of different cultures in this country and I'm, you know, really interested to actually learn from people who have immigrated to this country from other parts of the world. I'm really, you know, keen to actually listen to their story and hear their story. And so, you know, I would, you know, like that, you know, non-Aboriginal Australians you know, want to learn more about Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture and actually listen to our story and genuinely understand who we are as, 
as a race of people. Yeah, it seems like you've mentioned some really good points there, Tarini, in terms of um, listening to uh, the stories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, yeah, I guess, uh, as you said, educating uh, people in schools as well about the, the truth of history and not just uh, highlighting particular points and, you know, uh, skipping other important points, but just telling it in the fullness of truth um, about what, what actually happened. Um, and I think, you know, and I think that's, that's really important. It's not, you know, about ramming anything down people's throats. It's, you know, just about acceptance, about understanding and, and walking together. Mm. Um, I have... You know, amazing non-Aboriginal friends who, you know, have stuck by me thick and thin and, you know, and vice versa. You know, as an Aboriginal woman, I have stuck by my friends, you know, through thick and thin. So, you know, um, black and white can most definitely um, walk together. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Trini, do you mind if I ask, um, in, in the work that you've done, I know that you've done uh, workshops um, and training as well about Aboriginal culture, what, what's some of the feedback that you um, received uh, in the work you do and is there a story that you can share about how your work has impacted someone's uh, life? Well, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I've been doing, uh, you know, facilitating training, Aboriginal cultural awareness training uh, for quite some time. And, you know, I've trained oh, look, government workers, I've trained prison officers, I've trained sheriff's officers, I've, you know, trained magistrates and judges and, uh, you know, youth justice workers and corrections workers. And I guess, um, yeah, that, that's all about... Um, you know, getting them to understand who we are as a people and a culture and to, you know, understand some of the uh, complexities, um, you know, when uh, working and understanding Aboriginal culture. But I guess, you know, some of the really good, um, you know, the feel-good stories that I get is, um, you know, sometimes you will actually have people who are a little bit resistant to attending some training because they're not actually sure what to expect. But you know, the good thing is is that sometimes when I run, you know, the training and, you know, you'll get people that come up to you after the training who say, look, you know, I didn't really want to be here today, but I'm really, really grateful and I'm really, really mm. thankful that I did attend today because I've learned so much, you know, more about Aboriginal people. I understand now, you know, um, where you're coming from. And some of the things I really like is that when... You know, you get a phone call or you get an email, you know, a week or two after a training session from people who have actually gone home um, to their own families and actually talked about what they learned on the day. And they also want to actually teach their family and their children some of the history and some of the knowledge that they learned, you know, when, um, yeah, they attended training. Yeah. Um, so it really sounds like the, the work you do, such as in uh, the training workshops, has really had ripple, ripple effects in people's lives. Um, so they're not only um, learning really important elements about Aboriginal culture, but they're able to take that to their own friends and family to teach them as well and help them to um, better understand it all. 
I think that's what reconciliation is, you know, is all about is, you know, someone telling a story and then someone sharing it with someone else. Because I think, you know, the more that people talk about this, are open and honest in sharing that information, um, you know, the better the better we can actually move forward. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's I think it's fantastic to embrace to embrace the history, to embrace the culture, to embrace people. Um, it makes for a really you know nice world, I believe. Yeah. Um, so we're just about finished the interview for t- today, Tarina. Um, before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to say today? Look, I would like to, you know, say to, um, you know, all the listeners out there, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, learn more about Aboriginal people um, and culture, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, um, you know, there's lots of programs out there, there's a lot of reading, um, you know, you can do, but I guess the one thing um, I'd like to share is, you know, we're coming up to a period in July where uh, we have NAIDOC Week, and NAIDOC Week is a celebration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, and NAIDOC Week happens every year, uh, and this year, just from memory, the date for NAIDOC Week, the National NAIDOC Week for this year, um, is the 8th Till the 15th of July and I encourage everybody you know whether you're you know Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander non-Aboriginal or non-Torres Strait Islander to actually share in the festivities and the events that do take place because NAIDOC week is is about sharing culture community mm. um, it's not just about us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people it's about all of Australia um, you know sharing in that rich and diverse you know, rich and diverse culture that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have. So, yeah, I encourage, you know, non-Aboriginal Australians to actually get involved um, and uh, and join with us in celebrating a wonderful culture that is um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia. Um, and, Tarina, what are some of the festivities and celebrations that people can participate in uh, during uh, NAIDOC week? Yeah, so during NAIDOC week there are flag raising ceremonies, um, quite a lot of councils have flag raising ceremonies, um, there's also, um, they have a march from, um, in, in Melbourne they have a march from the, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service in Nicholson Street all the way to Federation Square, um, there are, you know, uh, different organisations might have luncheons on, um, you know, yeah, so there's lots of events. There's actually a NAIDOC calendar that gets published. So if anybody... And NAIDOC is N-A-I-D-O-C. So if you you know did a Google search and you put in um, NAIDOC events and Victorian NAIDOC events as well, um, it will actually come up with a calendar. There's NAIDOC balls. So, um, you know, they have like gala balls. Lots and lots of things take place. So it's really lovely. Um, so that brings us to the end of the time we think you're doing an absolutely amazing job so thank you so much for your time Um, all the best with the work that you are doing Um, and no doubt you're having a positive influence in the lives of of many people so thank you so much thank you very much for the opportunity to speak on youth and loud today thank you peter 
That brings us to an end of this episode of Youth and Loud. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Youth and Loud.